Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea, and we'll be in chapter number 5 tonight. Hosea chapter number 5. I think all of you have been here through the introduction, and so you know basically where we're at. But Hosea was a prophet that, of God that God sent to the na- na- nation of Israel, to the northern kingdom specifically, to warn them of their impending doom. So he had a very difficult task. Whenever you speak the word of God to a people who aren't listening, that's a warning here tonight, guys. It's a very difficult task. And he was speaking to a nation who was not listening. And and, uh, the reason they weren't listening, one of the reasons they weren't listening, listening was because they were prospering during that time. They actually thought they were doing pretty well. Under the reign of Jeroboam II, uh, the northern kingdom was actually prospering economically. They were a mighty military power. And uh, so, you know, they, I think they'd come to the point where they really, they might have said they needed the Lord, but really they didn't feel that they needed their Lord. So in one way, that prosperity was actually part of the judgment of God. Uh, that can be the case. I mean, God can actually prosper people and along with that prosperity, give them discontentment. The Bible tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. The Bible doesn't say that prosperity with discontentment is great gain. What is prosperity with discontentment? That is great loss. I mean, if you're prospering materially and and physically in this world, and yet you're discontent, something's wrong. I mean, something's wrong. You're missing something, and we know what that is. You're missing, you're missing the Lord. Now, I certainly don't believe that God's against prosperity, and, and, and uh, I'm not a prosperity preacher, but I, I believe God does prosper his children. I mentioned Psalm 35 last week. I mean, uh, God delights in the prosperity of his children. It's not, prosperity is not always a judgment. I mean, prosperity is, it comes along with the territory if you're a child of God. I mean, the Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, And all these things will be added unto you. In other words, if you, sit, if, if you get your priorities straight and, and uh, you seek the Lord and you know the Lord and God prospers you materially, that's not a curse, that's a blessing. And so God prospers his children. Delight yourself in the Lord, Psalms 37, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Uh, So over and over again, the Bible speaks of God having this desire to prosper his children. And so prosperity can be a good thing, but it can be a bad thing. I mean, if prosperity is our God, if we don't get things in the proper order, then, then prosperity comes with discontentment. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, remember in, uh, I'm trying to find the location here. Anyway, I think it was chapter 7. He who loves silver uh, will never be satisfied with silver. He who loves abundance with abundance. No matter what you have, you won't be satisfied with it. There will be discontent. Now, that makes chapters 4 and 5 very revealing chapters because uh, you get the steps of God's judgment in these two chapters. And the first step in God's judgment is prosperity with discontentment. 
You remember back in the last chapter, he said that, that uh, uh, you know, I will, I will feed you, I will give you good, but you will never have enough. You'll never have enough. You'll have plenty, but you'll never have enough is really what the Lord said back in the last chapter. And that is part of the judgment of God. I mean, I look at our nation today. We're a nation who has plenty, but we never have enough. I mean, it's a, and, and that's a curse. I mean, it's a curse on your life and on your society. You can never be satisfied with what you have. But we're going to look at some other steps to judgment as we come here to chapter number five. So it's a very important chapter. Uh, and let's, let's pick up in verse number one. And, he's, and, it, and it's, I'm not going to dwell on this a long time. And we're going to kind of go uh, maybe a little more rapidly through the text as we normally would uh, in these minor prophets. Because this, the message is going to be repeated over and over and over again. And I'm going to tell you, it's a gloomy message so we'll dig through the gloom or we'll read through the gloom and try to get through it as fast as we can. But, but we won't repeat ourselves over and over again. We'll let the prophet do that and then we'll, we'll, we'll go on from there. But, but, but uh, here, here's God and he's going to make his case against the people. And, and listen to what he says in verse number one. He says, hear this, O priest, take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. And so he's saying here to the priest, to the, to the people of Israel, and to the kings of Israel, for yours is the judgment. You are about to be judged. You're already being judged through your prosperity. You don't even know it. Yours is the judgment. And here's the reason you're going to be judged, because you have been a snare. He's speaking now to the, to the people, to the, to the leaders, the priests and the kings, because you have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. In other words, he takes two locations on one extreme, Mizpah in the south and Tabor in the north. And he says, from the north to the south, you've been a snare to the people and you've led this people away from God. So your, your, your nation is under judgment. It says, the revolters are deeply involved in slaughter. There's violence everywhere. Everywhere you go, there's violence. We talked about that last week. You saw that charge last week. Uh, though I rebuke all, they're, 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 the revolters are deeply involved uh, in, in the slaughter, in violence, in murder, in rape, and all of these terrible sins. In, in, and not only were they doing those things, they were, they were offering up their own children to the God of Molech. To, they were offering them up on the altar of fire and burning their children. Uh, really, why were they doing it? It was really like a, they didn't have abortion in that day. So as a matter of convenience, if you wanted to be free of your children, you just laid them up on the altar. Good thing when I was a kid, you know, that's pretty bad. I, you know, I might have been up on that altar pretty quick. But, but a good way, you know, you didn't want to mess with your children. You didn't want the burden of children. Instead of aborting those children, you'd give them to the God of Molech. And you'd take them through the fire and they would be dead. And so they were doing that like here in the United States today. I don't know if they were murdering millions of babies, but I'm sure thousands of babies, just like we've murdered millions of babies here in the United States for the sake of what? For the sake of convenience, for the sake of pleasure. And that's exactly what they were doing in that land. And he says in verses three and four, he says, I know Ephraim and Israel's not hidden from me. You know, he said, remember last week he said, Israel, uh, Ephraim is given over to idols, let her alone. God never really lets anybody alone. Nobody really ever gets out of his sight. 
But, but uh, and that was the case with Ephraim. Even though they were in all sorts of idolatry uh, and worshiping all these pagan gods, uh, God still knew what was going on there. He says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. I mean, God sees everything. For now, Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. They do not direct their deeds toward turning to God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst. And here's the big problem. The big problem. The big problem I see in our country today, in our churches today. They did not know the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. I mean, and not know about the Lord. They knew about the Lord. They, they mixed Yahweh worship into their pagan worship. So they knew all about Yahweh. But they didn't know Yahweh. They didn't have a relationship with Yahweh. They had a heart for pagan gods. And they had a heart for, for the pagan gods and all of the evil rituals that went along with that. They had a heart for materialism. And they didn't know the Lord. Verse number five, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. The very pride that they won't turn to the Lord. I mean, you would think when judgment begins, you would begin to turn to the Lord. They were a discontent people. They were a prospering people, but they were discontent people. Those gods weren't making them happy. But they didn't turn to the Lord because they were too proud to change the position they were in. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity and Judah's not far behind them. Judah's going to be judged too. It was 120 years or so later, but, the, but they were judged too. And then in verse number six, it says, with their flocks and herds, they, one day's going to come. The day's going to come with their flocks and their herds, so they shall go seek the Lord, but they will not find him, for he has withdrawn himself from them. He knows of all about them. He knows everything that's going on. But as these steps to judgment progress and it gets really bad, the last step we'll see here a little bit later is where some great tragedy befalls the nation. As these steps progress, there would come a time where Israel would turn to the Lord. But God wouldn't turn back to them because God had withdrawn from them. He had withdrawn himself from them. Why, why wouldn't God turn back? I mean, if, 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 if they were ready to offer sacrifices and they were ready to offer uh, up praise to the Lord, I mean, why wouldn't he accept that in, uh, in those conditions? Because he, he would know that they sincerely, uh, they sincerely weren't repenting. They were just doing that because they were in trouble. All right, then he says in verse number seven, they have dealt treacherously with the Lord. For they have begotten pagan children. We saw this in the first few chapters. Lo of me, these people are not my people. They've raised a generation of children who didn't know the Lord. A generation of pagan children. Now there's going to be a new moon. New moon meant a new time. Uh, you could, it's synonymous with a new time in the life. Uh, whenever they, they, they uh, celebrated the new moon, it was, it was like... The mercies of God were new every day. So this new time was coming, a, a time of hope, a time of uh, uh, prosperity, but not in this case. Now a new moon shall devour them. What's, on their, what's in their future is not prosperity and not favor from the Lord. This new moon is going to be bad for them. 
It's going to be bad for them and their heritage, for their children. Uh, judgment is coming upon them. It's going to destroy them and destroy their children. And then he goes to verse, in verse number eight, he says, Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah and Ramah. Where are they? They're in the southern kingdom. He says, okay, blow the trumpet. You blew the trumpet for two reasons. Why did you blow the trumpet? To, for when something really good happened and when something really bad happened. When there was a new king, they blew the trumpet. When there was something really bad happening, they blew the trumpet. In Judah's eyes, the northern kingdom deserved to go into captivity. They had become, to, to, they had actually come to a point where they almost hated each other. So the Lord says, blow the trumpet. And I think Israel's saying, I mean, the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin are saying, great. We, we, we're glad you're about to judge them. Uh, he says, blow the trumpet of Gibeah, the trumpet of Ramah. Cry out and loud in Bethlehem. Look behind you, O Beth Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. And the tribes of Israel I make known. And among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. They're, they're, they're going to be desolate. It's for sure. And the princes of Judah, man, blowing the trumpet because, hey, to them, maybe this is an opportunity for them to expand their territory. When they, all these uh, uh, northern Israelis go into captivity, then maybe the southern Israelis can take over some of that northern kingdom and expand their landmarks. But, hey, that's not going to happen I'm going to pour out my wrath on them just like on you, just like I poured it out on them. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. And then in verse number 11, he says, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment. Now watch this. Because he willingly walked by human precepts. What's human precepts? Humanism. He willfully rejected God and walked by human precepts. Now, wait a minute. Didn't you say, Pastor, that uh, they worshiped pagan gods and they were being punished for their idolatry, uh, for their worship of pagan gods? Yeah, I did say that. But that really is a form of humanism. Because what do we do in humanism? Who do we lift up the most in humanism? Ourselves. We lift up mankind above everything. And so when you worship frogs and you worship created gods and wooden idols, what are you doing? You're really who you lifted up. You're lowering Jehovah God and you're lifting up mankind. So really paganism is just a form of humanism. And so they willfully walk by human precepts. And so God has given them uh, his verdict. They're guilty of rebellion, apostasy, and idolatry. And now he gives them the sentence, and it's pretty tough. Look at verse number 12. He says, therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. Those are, that's a parallelism. A moth is like uh, rust. Why? What's the metaphor being used there? It's slow decay. I mean, it's sure decay, but it's slow decay. Well, moths really aren't that bad. I mean, goodness, he wouldn't, that wouldn't scare you very much. I mean, a moth, I mean, a moth can't uh, sting you. It can't bite you. 
uh, you know, they're really pretty harmless creatures. Baloney. Baloney, man. I tell you what, if, uh, back in the spring, somebody, not here in the church, but somebody gave us some free nuts. And uh, I, I took those nuts and I set them on top of the refrigerator. And it wasn't but a few days after that, I noticed we had moths flying all over the house. And we were killing moths, you know, as fast as we could and, and uh, trying to get rid of all the moths. And I started to think, where are these moths coming from? So I went and looked at that package of nuts. It was in a, in a like an orange, you know, with the, the bag you put oranges in so it had, had holes in it. And that bag of nuts had thousands of moths in it. Of course, I took the bag of nuts and went and threw it. I didn't eat them. I went and threw it out in the garbage can. But that wasn't the end of our moss. The moss at that point had gotten into our pantry. So we got in there and we, we took all the food that was open in the pantry. And in the food that was open, you would see the little moss uh, walking around in the, in the food. We threw all the, all the open food away. We tried to keep the non-open food. We put it in a cooler, shut the cooler door cooler door down where there was no way there could be any air, any water to get in there. So we figured that would be the end of any eggs or any more moss. We took the pantry and we cleaned out the pantry with bleach. And like three days later, we would open up the pantry and there'd be a whole new batch of moss in there. And we would spray it with bleach again. And that was where we finally, the only way we got the moss out of the pantry was to paint the pantry. Then we opened up the cooler and there was a whole new batch of moss down in the cooler. So we threw all of that food away. So uh, we thought we'd gotten rid of all the moss. And then we, once in a while we'd see one flying around. So we went back to the closet and they had made a nest in one of my shirts in the closet. So we had moss in the closet and we got rid of those moss. And now I think we're close to being to the end of our war with the moss. But let me tell you what, I've learned moss are terrible things. They can't hurt you, but... You know, in a, in a society like Israel, I mean, your food and your clothes is basically what you have. And if they can destroy that, you have nothing. Sure, it takes time. In Louisiana, we know all about rot, don't we? Mildew, mold, uh, rust, uh, blight. I mean, we have all of these things. And so we, you know what the metaphor is here. It's trouble that comes really slowly it's not so painful at first, but over time, it's, it eats at you and it eats at what you have. And it's like a judgment of God. Now, let me say this before I go any further. We live in a fallen world. So we're going to be subject to some of the judgments of God on this earth. And, some of the, and if God judges this country, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to. Suffer with it, I can tell you right now. So, so I'm not picking and saying if you've got trouble, then, then that means if moths are eating it. I mean, obviously, I, I had them at my house. But things like moss, things like things that eat up your bank account, the little foxes spoil the vine. If you're having those kind of problems, hey, that's, that's part of living in a fallen world. But it also might be God speaking to you that, hey, you're not right in your relationship with me. And I want to draw you closer to me. And so I started out by prospering you and then you didn't you, you didn't hear me. And so then instead of prospering you, I gave you that discontent with that prosperity. You didn't hear me then. 
And so now I'm brought these little moths and and blight into your life. And, and I'm trying to get you to listen to me because it can get really bad. Something really bad can happen if that's what God has to do to get our attention. All right, let's go. Uh, let's go to verse 13. We're about to finish up here. Verse number 13. He says, when Ephraim saw, let me, let me back up a minute. Let me tell you about the worst kind of rot there is. And that's the rot of the soul. I mean, when someone willingly rejects God, willingly, willingly, what did he say in that last, that verse back there? He says, uh, uh, I'm, verse number 11 is the one I'm looking at. Look at verse number 11. Because he willingly walked by human precepts. I mean, when we willingly reject the word of God and place above that human precepts. And we don't nurture our relationship with God. Then our souls are going to rot. I mean, and the more and more. We draw, uh, the less and less we draw near to God and the more and more we drift from God, the more and more our souls rot. And I believe as believers, we can just get rotten at times because we're not nurturing our relationship with the Lord. We just got so much stuff going on in the world. And I, I, I'll tell you this, God will do what it takes to get our attention, especially if you're a believer. He's going to do what it takes to get your attention. When Ephraim saw his sickness, said Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim, verse number 13, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb. King Jareb was the, the, uh, another name probably for Sargon. Sargon was actually the king who came down and just, I, I think I said Sennacherib in one of my Freudian slips a few weeks back, but it actually was Sargon. Sennacherib came against Hezekiah in the southern kingdom. He was, he was Sargon's son. But Sargon II is the one who came and actually destroyed Israel. And so here is Israel. When, when they saw their sickness and Judah saw his wound, then, then Ephraim, I mean, here are these moths eating away at Israel and they're becoming weak. And they see that they're not strong enough militarily to fight Egypt and to fight Syria and some of these other companies. And when they saw their wound, instead of turning to the Lord, uh, they turned to King Jareb. Yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. So then we get the third step in judgment. Remember the first step? Prosperity with discontentment. What's the second step? The moss and the rottenness, those things that slowly eat away at your life. And then the third step in judgment, and this is a tough one. I will be like a lion to Ephraim, verse number 14, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I even I will tear them and go away. Now, God used Sargon II to tear them apart and then he left them. He says, just like a lion coming in and taking its prey and tearing it apart and leaving it for dead. That's what God's saying. 
That's the, this third step of judgment. I will be like a lion to Ephraim and I will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one shall be there to rescue them. Nobody's going to rescue them. The, the tragedy is going to be so bad that nobody can fix it. So when we refuse to listen to God, when he's gently nudging us and judging us, and uh, wasting, you know, slowly deteriorating the things we have, our souls are getting rotten and we still don't listen, then there comes a point when, like a lion, he roars and comes in and, and uh, uh, something really terrible happens at that point. For a nation, it might be a nat natural disaster. Uh, for a nation, it might be a war. It might be a plague. For an individual, it might be some terrible disease or something. And again, we all live in a fallen world. And we can all get terrible diseases. One day, we all will get a terrible disease. But what you want to ask yourself with, when all of these things are happening, is the Lord trying to speak to me? And at least, you know, get before the Lord and say, Lord, are you, are you, are you judging me? I mean, if you're judging me, I want to know. More than likely, he's not. If you're a born-again believer, what do we know? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's no judgment in that sense. But there is. God, God is going to do what it takes to, to, to move a nation. And, and most importantly, he's going to do what it takes to move his people into a proper relationship with him. So, so we might have a line come at us, not literally, but some type of disaster like that where God's trying to to, to get our attention. And, and Ephraim, I mean, for the northern kingdom, it couldn't have been any worse than that. It couldn't have been any worse than what happened to them. I mean, most of that nation was slaughtered and the rest of the, uh, what was left, a small remnant went off in the captivity, like I said, with foot fish hooks in their noses. It was terrible what took place to the, to the Israelites. And then comes the fourth stage of judgment. And this is the worst stage of all. The absolute worst stage of all. And it comes at absolutely the worst time. When do you need God the most? When a lion has torn you apart. When something really tragic has happened in your life. How sad it is for those who reject God that God takes them into this fourth stage of judgment. Look at this. First, I'll just read the first part of 15. I will return again to my place. The lion's going to tear you apart, Israel. And what am I going to do? Am I going to come rescue you? No, no one's going to rescue you. No one's going to rescue you. I will return again to my place. Sounds a lot like chapter 4, verse 17. Ephraim is joined to idols, let her alone. There's no cure for this generation. I will return again to my place. Boy, I mean, you talk about a dark place to be. 
The darkest place to be is a place where you don't hear from the Lord. And if God allows us to get into a really bad fix and then we don't hear from him, it is really a really, really, really dark place to be. Again, if you're a child of God, God never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He's always there. But again, I think God works with us as believers sometimes like this. He never leaves us. But sometimes if that's what it takes to get our attention, to get us back into the right relationship with him that he wants, we'll think he's gone. And I got to tell you, he's done that with me on occasion. And that is the worst, darkest feeling in the world, especially when you've ever known the Lord and you've known his light. And then maybe for a season you experience that darkness. And he, and, and, and that's what had happened to this nation. That's what I, you know, I don't know where we're at in the United States today. We certainly in the prosperity with discontentment stage. And uh, we certainly have all sorts of moss and rottenness that eat away at what we have, all this prosperity that we have. Our holes have pockets in them. We can't keep, keep them full. We can't buy the things we, we want. And maybe one day we can't buy the things we need. And then maybe the lion's going to roar at some point. And there's going to be some major tragedy in this country. And then... The worst tragedy of all, God says, I will return to my place. I'll leave them alone. They're joined to idols. There's nothing more that I can do. Aren't you glad? Verse 15 doesn't end there. 15b, till. Till. Great word there, till. I like some of the butts in the Bible uh, and I like some of the tills in the Bible. Till's a good word here. Till they acknowledge their offense. What was their offense? Their offense was they didn't know the Lord. They were willful, willfully uh, going, following human precepts and not following after the Lord. They were willfully worshiping pagan gods. And so the first thing that God wants to happen, the reason he withdraws himself is so that they will realize their offense. How do they realize their offense when he withdraws himself? Because all that prosperity is gone. All that protection has gone. And here they are and the lion is roared and ripped them apart and they're laying there and it's like, they call out to their idols and what do their idols do? Their idols do nothing because their idols can't do anything. And they realize that all that prosperity they had and all that protection they had came from the Lord. It didn't come from idols. And so they understand where they're at and, and they acknowledge their defense, their offense. And then when you really realize why you're in the situation you're in and you acknowledge your offense, then what happens? You seek the face of the Lord and in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. They will sincerely repent. That's why God, God never brings about judgment, but to get revenge, God brings about judgment and, and difficulty in our lives to draw us back to him. I mean, 
I'm glad he does. You know what? We would, we're prone to wonder. If God did, didn't chasten his children, we would just walk, float right away into idolatry ourselves. And so the judgments of God are the, are the love of God being expressed upon his people. Yeah, that sounds something so familiar to me to what Jesus said, and, and, and we'll finish with this over in Luke. Go with me over to Luke. Chapter 13. You remember Jesus had poured out his life for the nation of Israel. He was about to die for the nation of Israel. He was about to die for all of mankind. But he had come into his own and his own had received him not. And he knew the situation that they were given to idols. I mean, they thought they were worshiping Yahweh, but they weren't. They were given over to human precepts willingly given over to human precepts. And you remember just a short time before the cross, Jesus wept in chapter 34 and he said, I mean in verse 34, and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing you were willingly ignorant you wouldn't let your heart see all the miracles I did you wouldn't let your heart hear all the words that I spoke you were willingly ignorant you weren't willing and then the judgment see your house and that house didn't just refer to the temple it referred to them as individuals your house is left to you desolate. I will leave you alone. I will return again to my place. I will return, Jesus says, to the glory which I had before the foundation of the world. I'll leave you alone. But look, there's that till, that good word there, till the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A day's coming. That judgment that we see here in Hosea, the judgment that Jesus spoke here, uh, that nation is still under that judgment. But there's going to come a time there's going to come a time when God's finally put the final hammer on them. And when's that going to come? It's going to come in the great tribulation. You talk about a lion tear the nation apart. That will happen to them in the great tribulation. And then at that point, uh, they will, they will uh, acknowledge their offense. They will seek my face in their afflictions. And they will earnestly seek me. That's the path of judgment. That's the, that's the judgment this whole world's under. 
I mean, all the people in this country that are prospering materially and, and have discontent, they're under judgment because they don't know the Lord. All the people who seem to never be able to get ahead, no matter how hard they work, uh, and they don't know the Lord, they're under the judgment of the Lord. And then some great tragedy strikes. And God doesn't send that tragedy to get revenge because they don't know him. He sends them that tragedy so they will know him. And so they'll come to the point where they acknowledge their offense, that they've worshipped nothing but humanism and pagan idols. They will seek my face, and in their affliction they will earnestly seek me. That's why God sends judgment. That's why he sends trials. It's always to get people to turn to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you again for your goodness to us, the, your patience with us, Lord, your long-suffering. Father, most of us here are born-again believers, and we're not under any kind of condemnation or judgment, Lord. We know that. We're, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, Lord, we drift too. And, Lord, sometimes uh, you have to uh, chasten us with similar things, Lord. Lord, but we don't have to have the lion, the lion tear us apart in order to turn back to you, Lord. Just, just, just remind us. Just touch us and woo us and bring us close to you. Lord, we want to live close to you. We want to live in, in a real knowledge of you, in a real relationship with you. Father, that's our choice. And you love us too much to let us choose otherwise. And we thank you for that. Father, we just thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.